Everyone has a story, but not everyone is a storyteller. Hello, my name is Karen Tang, Tang Keren, and my name is Ahmed Nomadic Ali. Welcome. You're listening to Otherwise Wisdom from the Other, a podcast dedicated to empowering diverse communities living on Treaty Six territory by sharing stories of their lived experiences. We are recording today, June six, twenty twenty one. We're season two, and we are so glad to be working together again, Ahmed. Since we last worked with each other on this podcast, what have you been up to? There's a lot. If somebody wants to come and meet with me and have coffee, I'll tell you the whole shebang. But in quick, it's been fantastic. Um, my poet laureate tenure ended. Um, spent time with family. You know, really reinvigorating and readjusting myself. And uh, school board was over and finished with. But somehow I dove right back into politics and I'm running uh, in the municipal election for city council in 2021 on October 18th for Ward Testawinawak. And I am super excited. What about yourself? Uh, so things been, yeah, no, since we last connected on season one, um, you know, continue to juggle home life, uh, work life, the transitioning from working with the city of Edmonton. Uh, focusing on the downtown core and some of the really complex challenges there to working across the nation with various communities, thinking about how do we build our communities better. COVID has changed so much of that, lots of uncertainties, lots of changes. But one thing that hasn't changed is my motivation to run for public office. And like you, I'm also a city council candidate this time in the southeast ward of Garejillo. This is our. This is my second time running, um, and the last time, you know, it was a very similar ward. But things are things are steady. This is a marathon. We always have to tell ourselves, you know. And one of the reasons why we. You know, I've certainly been thinking a lot about what's a good way to kind of share with audience and to the public and Edmontonians about what it's like to be a candidate. And also, when I think about when I listen to so much of the political commentary on civic issues in Edmonton, it's 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 most of the time it's being led by white men, and I'm just like. Back to this motivation, why we even started otherwise to begin with is that we need more diverse voices, you know, in the conversation. What do you think? No, you're you're one hundred and ten percent right. Uh, in fact, uh, honestly, the reason why I'm putting my uh, decision again to run for city council this time instead of school board is because it, I don't always think about I want to be elected, but I want to make sure that diverse people understand that there's an opportunity for them to run as well, and that we need diverse voices on city council, and that only happens by people challenging and risking things. And so mainly it's me, like if I can speak in metaphor for a second, I may not be the one that gets to benefit from the fruits of the tree. Maybe I'm just the person who tills the soil. Uh, Maybe I'm the person who tills the soil and then eventually gets to plant a seed or two. Regardless, the objective is in the long run to have more diverse voices on city council because experience, lived experience is essential. And honestly, I think that's the reason where uh, otherwise podcast came from is because there were a lack of diverse stories and perspectives in in, in the podcast community. Is that, but, but what makes, you know, because this is my first time running for city council and I already understand the challenges. Uh, and I, as much as I want to make a change, what makes you want to go back into this, Karen? Well, and, and I think much, much of those motivation is still the same. You know, you talk about, you know, you know, we, we, we really like to focus on thinking about actions and solutions that are rooted in those community voices. And I think one of the most important things that I think is lacking, and I want to be a better bridge builder to connect, is between the stories happening on the ground in the communities with the decisions, with those actions, with those policies. 
we can't unilaterally make those decisions without kind of grounding in those stories. And if we don't hear those stories, if we don't have mechanisms like otherwise, like so many other opportunities, then we're going to miss that connection. And so for me, it's essentially the same, uh, whether to make this show, but also, you know, to run for public office. And I think, you know, in our discussion, we've also talked about how it's important to document, you know, our experiences. And I think that's why we're back at Otherwise, to make sure that we are documenting the process um, so that going forward, if anybody wants to know it, in the future, we'll talk more about the details of being a candidate, just so that people can understand, because usually you have to start from uh, bottom, and it's challenging to not know where to start from. Uh, I know that was challenging for me. And so, yeah, I'm glad we're back here and chatting and putting this on the record, uh, because it is important for future generations and for myself and my mental health to really use a creative uh, perspective on running for office. And so in the weeks uh, and months moving forward until, you know, the election and perhaps even after the election on October 18th, 2021, everyone here, you know, you can expect Akhman and I check in uh, every few weeks, maybe share a glimpse of what is happening on our campaign trails. What are the stories? What are the lived experiences that we're hearing directly from people? Um, and what are some of those relevance and uh, how they're related to policy and decisions? So that's what you can expect from us uh, in the weeks to come. Yep. And also some of our challenges. Speaking about some of the challenges, uh, you're a parent. So are you. I know. <laughs> and that's why I'm asking because you ran for city councilor. I know school board is not as intensive. It's still, it's still campaigning, right? And it still taught me a lot on the challenges of being a parent, being a, a partner in a marriage and running for office. It's it's not that simple. And so I'm wondering how you work, how you cope, how you manage and how you, you know, really navigate that. Yeah, you know, it's really hard. Um, I will say the first time in 2017, I just had my baby. I was, um, you know, parental leave. My baby was young enough that I can kind of bring her to a lot to lots of events. I don't have family here, so I had to develop a lot of the network in the community uh, to for that community care. You know, it really takes a village to raise a child, and I really took that concept to heart to help build that support so that I can also at the same time pursue this goal. Um, and this time around, you know, she is four years older. Uh, you know, she is sassy as heck. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's, she's about to go to school very soon. And I'm so thankful for our childcare, our frontline workers, because without them, I don't actually know how I will manage home life and um, work life and campaign life. I have a fairly intensive job that I start very early in the day. I end, you know, in the early afternoon, and I can't enter into a campaign mode. And then there is like a good three to four hour chunk that is dedicated to family and it's extremely precious. And I work around that schedule as best as I can, even though I know it's going to get hectic. So having a supportive partner is also incredibly important. And I know you know this really well, probably even better than me because you have two kids. Tell us about that. Ooh, the first time it was simply just Layla. Uh, which is, I believe, around the same age as mm -hmm. your child as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, now is I'm a lot more comfortable and I'm a lot more composed with the situation because I know what to expect. It is it is challenging because I want to make sure that I give my children my utmost attention, but at times it requires also me to be gone mentally because I do need to speak with people. And I need to make contacts and I need to make sure that I'm preparing for door knocking and I got the flyers ready and I'm fundraising. So it gets challenging. So I try to incorporate my children 
into that process as much as possible. So something like fundraising, when I'm making phone calls, I sit beside them during quiet time in the reading and I sit with them and I make the phone calls because them interrupting my conversation when I'm asking for donations isn't as challenging as it is when I am in a meeting that requires my full attention. That's right. And so there is a process at home when they wake up in the morning. The first thing they do is they do some creativity, some crafts, they hang out by themselves. And then I try to give them about an hour's attention right before lunch so that we can hang out together. Then we eat lunch together and that's about nap time. So I really work my way around their schedule, but I also try to make sure that I remind them that I'm still their father and that whatever I'm doing is to complement and accent who they are and what they are to become and not necessarily separate from them because it's a process and they're a part of the family as well. Yeah, you know, for a, for a few months there uh, at, at the beginning of COVID when, you know, all childcare facilities were closed, my husband and I were trying our best to to operate, you know, childcare at home, uh, but don't really have that kind of experience uh, anymore, really, with structure. And I think based on what you're saying and kind of based on my own current experience, I'm thinking, you know, one of the, the key ways of navigating around this home work campaign life is having structure and really sticking to it. It's hard. It's so hard, <laughs> but I don't know how I would kind of, you know, go around it, quite frankly. I guess I should be transparent as well. I'm a full-time artist. So my job is to speak publicly. And now because nobody's going to public, I'm on Zoom. And so I just tell my children, hey, listen to this simple song, which is educational YouTube videos that they can learn from for about a quick 20 to 30 minutes. I do this presentation and then I come back to Mm -hmm. them. And so I'm very fortunate that I don't necessarily have a boss or a job and that I can commit my time to them and that structure, and I can work around mm-hmm. them. So I'm very privileged um, to be able to do that. And I'm the main caretaker at home as well. I, there's no need to put my children in the daycare because I am at home all the time, and I try to make sure that I'm, I'm present with them. But the uh, oldest is about to start school, which is going to make it so much easier. Thank you to all the educators who do the, the parenting work for us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, one of the things you and I, we, we've kind of chatted a lot about, too, in the past is how it's not just parenting. It's, a, it's also parenting in a very multiracial family. And, you know, this is something I personally really struggle with. Um, you know, my, my daughter is biracial. You know, I am very, I would say, connected with my Chinese heritage and language. Uh, but I have found it very uh, difficult to kind of maintain that uh, part of my identity and I don't always speak to her in, in Mandarin, for example. Uh, we, you know, we can do songs. We can have very simple commands and like simple responses, and that is fine. I mean, part of, I think, my challenge in life is sort of navigating that. Yeah. So, I'm, again, I'm privileged because I'm, I'm, my children are biracial as well. And so my children have direct access to my family because they're here, both sides. So she gets to learn from both the Filipino, Vietnamese culture and the Somali culture. So they're always accessible. And so they're learning the languages and little things here and there. So I'm I'm very fortunate in that sense. So they're learning. But I, I guess for me really quick, I just want to know how you're able to or if it's like an emphasis to maintain the language, because that's very integral. That's important. Having a second language and knowing your identity, that's very integral in your growth. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when she was very young, we actually traveled back to China to visit family. And literally every single person I have ever talked to, like every grandma, every, every like 
auntie who passed you like on the street, like complete strangers, the first thing they'll ask you is, does she speak Chinese? And it drove me nuts uh, because it is important to me, but I don't necessarily feel like I have all the, I have the environment around me. You know, my husband doesn't speak Mandarin. So at home, the primary language is English. You know, she's at an age where we're kind of having to choose uh, whether you want to go into bilingual school or immersion or, you know, some other or, or your neighborhood schools that right now in our current case doesn't offer necessarily the second language that I want her to speak. And then I think I'm also kind of at a point where I'm like, you know, whose decision is it? You know, because it's my identity, too, um, and that I want her to kind of own. But she's also her own person. And I think, you know, in she will have to kind of make up her mind one day um, about how she navigates her cultural identity. And uh, what I can do as a parent is provide as much as I can um, when it comes to books, when it comes to movies, when it comes to music, to language, to, you know, people, the faces that she sees on a regular basis, um, to her peers, to our network. I can offer those options and it will be up to her to to navigate and make it her own and to embrace it. So what about you, Ahmed? Tell me, like, what do you do in your family and with your children's upbringing? And how do you, how do you instill that, you know, proud culture in them? That's a very good question, but also very challenging because um, I'm Somali and my wife is Filipina and Vietnamese mix. And so there are a multitude of identities in our family. And I also try to make sure that whenever there is uh, Chinese New Year's or Diwali or anything that is separate from our own culture to try to understand it because recognizing differences is what makes us stronger and then we value others. And so at home, you know, I, I try to give them directions in Somali and I also try to teach them some Tagalog. I am by no means an expert in speaking Tagalog, but I make an effort. And I think through that, what I'm teaching them is, is to appreciate and challenge yourself to recognize that there are differences and it's important for you to learn about others as well and that you shouldn't isolate yourself and only focus on you solely. But a better community is made by recognizing that we are different. Because I know whenever I go to specific places and somebody as Filipino and I recognize after having a conversation, it makes it way more connected when I can say specific things like thank you or whatever. So they feel more connected to who I am and what they are. Because they're like, well, why would you go out of your way to learn my language? And, and that's kind of what I feel like uh, the challenge is with the census. It doesn't really get into the details of all of that stuff. It asks you what languages are spoken at home, but it doesn't talk about how those languages are learned, where are they learned, because that also contributes to who our identity is, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's a good reminder because we just filled out our census um, not too long ago. And I was actually quite surprised at how, I think, light or kind of surface level the data is being collected about kind of, you know, your family and, and, and the various, you know, status, whether you rent or you own or, uh, you know, and what languages each person speaks. And I just think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because it doesn't quite get into so, so much of the dynamic and the diversity within our communities and families. And if you're a candidate, you know, like you're trying to use various sources of data to understand your constituents, trying to understand your voters, those communities, your wards and census is actually, you know, this really important um, metric system that's collected that will give you that kind of information. And I, 
while I was filling it out, I was just thinking, I was like, oh, that's kind of too bad because it just feels so so light, you know, and, um, and I wish there were a bit more. And I think now we're kind of with a technology, we could certainly get into more of that granularity. And I just think we talk so much about race-based data these days, whether it's anti-racism, whether it's better service delivery, even with COVID, you know, there's a movement among many organizations to see race-based data, even in COVID cases, um, just so that they can provide better programming and better health promotion resources to various specific communities. So, you know, I just feel like we, we, we could definitely have better ways to get into some of that deeper granularity. Yeah, I, I know for as a person who loves the North side, I want to know why is it that there is less um, home ownership here? Do people first arrive to Edmonton and they're at the north side? Or do they start in the south and they face challenges and they, they move here because it's more accessible, more affordable? Those are the type of things that also benefit, would benefit the city and city policymaking because then you can find ways to really diversify neighborhoods and not gentrify them to a specific way, right? You know what I mean? It, it doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of, why we migrate the way we do, why we move to specific neighborhoods or why we retain certain languages or why certain communities are better at retaining their language than others are, you know? Yeah. Anyways, there's so much here to talk about. You know, I think we can kind of really go in, in, in depth when it comes to these kinds of data collection uh, and, you know, when it comes to diverse communities, but I'm sure there's going to be another opportunity that we're going to, this is going to come up again. Um, Anyways, there you have it. That was our, Uh, Very first season two, uh, episode one of the Otherwise podcast with Karen and Ahmed Nomadikali. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Lisa Pruden with direct support and guidance by Omar Yakub. Music produced by Kaz Otherwise podcast is an affiliate member of the Operative Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. Special thanks to Megan Robinson-Anagor, Jenna Moji, and Morenike Molaoshe-Bikan, who are co-founders and contributors to Season 1 of The Otherwise Show, done with the support of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. You can find past and current episodes at ribbonrouge.com slash otherwise dash show. To follow our journey, you can check us out at Karen Tang, Y-E-G, and A-Nomadic on Twitter and Instagram. Or at our websites, karentang.ca and ahmedali.ca. Thanks for joining. See you next time.